0: hello 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 hi for the last time this series it's me sam hampson here with a bonus episode of the what's happening now podcast an early christmas present if you will or a very very late one from last year maybe perhaps it's a birthday present Uh, but only if it's your birthday today i guess if it is then hey congrats But, I hear you ask, what is this gift? Well, James and I caught up with Xeon Lights recently to tie in with COP28, which, yes, has admittedly literally just finished. That was happening then, But the conversation continues around climate, nuclear power and the not insignificant but perhaps underrated chit-chat of how to change the world. Zeon is a science communicator, an advocate for facts and figures and changing the world in pragmatic ways. And also, as it happens, a former spokesperson for Extinction Rebellion who now works as a champion for nuclear power. Now, at the risk of wetting your whistle a little too much too soon, um, Zeon does say some things in this interview which are her experience, her perspective. And we put those to Extinction Rebellion to see if they had any comment to make. Uh, They apparently did not. They did not get back to us. So this is Xeon's version. I began by suggesting Extinction Rebellion to nuclear power didn't necessarily seem like the most obvious career path.
1: No, it doesn't. And people are always surprised by it. But actually, if you think about it logically you know, the trajectory makes complete sense because 20 years ago I was protesting fossil fuels. I was arrested for shutting down a coal fire power station. I was arrested again uh, protesting tar sands. And then eventually, you know, I I got more involved in kind of the data side and, and started to question a bit more the sort of um, beliefs held by the environmental movement that I was a big part of. And I started to think, why don't we ever fight for what we want as well as against the things we don't want which actually you know activist movements tend not to be very good at that and and to be fair you know there's there's research into this it shows social movements that are against something are much more likely to be successful than people that are promoting something but i started to realize actually in extinction rebellion we really helped to kind of shift the needle on that and 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 create that awareness around climate change the need for net zero and all of these things that I'd spent 20 years banging on about struggling to get people to listen to. Suddenly we had this moment, this pivotal moment, I think, where everybody suddenly cared, like even people who don't like the tactics, they do care about the environment, they do care about climate change. They, most people do agree that it's, it's a real problem. I mean, there's still a minority of you know, people who deny that, but actually most people broadly agree, especially in Britain. And actually the question I kept being asked in Extinction Rebellion when I was a spokesperson was, well, what do we do? And that's where I diverged from the traditional path but I wouldn't say that um, you know it wasn't a logical path it's more that I kind of thought we need to change with the times here people are asking what those actions are policy makers need to know what the actions are that we need to take someone needs to bridge the gap that that's the bit where I really have diverged Um, and I know James you've written um, a lot about this as well about Mm that pe- people are good, actually, people with people comes great uh, innovation and progress. And that's become my, my message. So I founded Emergency Reactor so that those people who are asking those questions, saying we don't want to give money to these groups anymore. We want to do activism, but we don't support their aims. I created Emergency rights as a space for those people to come in.
2: I, I want to ask you more about uh, activism and the, the tactics and the strategies being used, but I guess to sort of, sort of set the scene a little bit, how is Britain doing at decarbonising? So a couple of years ago, I'm sure people listening will remember, we had the big COP conference in Glasgow uh, where it seemed like, you know, the whole world was there caring about the issue. But oh, have, has anything happened since then? Are we doing OK? How is it looking?
1: Look, the we can't do this quickly enough. You know, you've got people who want... They want us to just stop oil tomorrow. This is not possible. We cannot do this quickly enough. And there is an argument to be made that we should have done it decades ago. We should have done what France did in the nineteen eighties. Twelve years decarbonized, done. Like we many of us should have done that. Um you know, compared to previous years, pre-Extinction Rebellion, where there were no net zero targets, there was very little energy being put in this direction. I think we are doing better and that is something to be optimistic about and i know a lot of people are fed up of these cops they've been every year and the same things get said and blah 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 i went to cop 26 but i felt there was a lot of progress in talking about solutions and part of that was because there was a bit of a nuclear presence which believe it or not had not been at previous cops that didn't exist before there wasn't this kind of practical um focus on how have countries decarbonized and how can we do it now so we're doing some things really well um, we're trying to put in cycling infrastructure. We are putting in the electric vehicle charging points. We are shifting over to electric vehicles. More people buy solar panels for their roofs and heat pumps. Yeah, all right. All of these issues now become wedge issues. Frankly, these, this transition has to happen, but then we want the grid that supports that electrification to also be clean. Now, that that's the bit where we're falling short, um, and I I find that disappointing because, you know, look, look at Britain, come on, look at Britain, birthplace of the Industrial Revolution, can't build housing, can't build power plants, can't build railways, what happened? But I still think we have the expertise, we have the ability, and we have the wealth, let's be honest, there's plenty of nations that don't have the wealth. So I'm kind of still optimistic. Um, You know, we're not building nuclear very well, let's be honest, you know, that's not... And that's not all on the industry. People will blame the industry. Look, I don't work for the industry. I can criticize them in my own way. I think their communication hasn't been great over the years. But in terms of building them, this is entirely a governmental problem. There's plenty of countries uh, like South Korea or the UAE where they've built these reactors in, in a matter of, you know, four or five years. And we have Hinckley point C that will eventually come online and it will provide lots of clean energy, but it's so slow. It's ridiculously slow. Sizewell C is still a battle with the environmentalists. I don't know if you followed any of that, but huge legal battle where they're saying it's environmentally damaging. There's this huge report showing how it's not, and it will actually have a, a positive impact on the environment because they're turning all this surrounding land into like wildlife havens and stuff. I mean, we need a serious planning reform in this country, right? We need to get building. In terms of decarbonizing, ordinary people are making these Lifestyle changes, these shifts, as I said, that's very positive, but the the government is is failing us because actually, even once Hinkley and Sizewell come online, if Sizewell ever comes online and gets built, um, that's only that's only going to replace the closing generation. So, the reactors that we already have uh, that are shutting down naturally because they're old. Um, that capacity, that has to be replaced. And so we're not thinking beyond this at all. And partly that's because we're lazy and we can just import from other countries and we can import coal from other countries and, and export the environmental and health costs to them. We never allow that at home. Right. So I think that's where we're really messing up. You know, obviously, you know, British politics, there should be should be some change next year. There should be a general election. I think a changing of the guard is well, well in order, just couldn't come soon enough. And it really I'm really hopeful that that is going to translate into, into all the things that um, we need to do to get this country on track, which frankly is about building. It's as simple as that. We need to
3: build a lot. So, Zian, you, you, you said there you were, um, you were an optimist and you're optimistic about what can be done. But you're also using phrases like the government's failing us, we're messing up, what happened, we need planning reform. Why are you still an optimist?
1: Well, I'm optimistic because they're all solvable problems. If if we didn't have nuclear energy and if renewables hadn't come down in price, uh, when I say renewables, I mean wind and solar specifically, if they hadn't come an, down in price and become more accessible, then I would have no solution for you. Right now, I would just say we are all going to have to reduce how much energy we use. And frankly, that would lead to stagnation and negative impacts for a lot of people. The fact is, we do have the technologies, we do have the expertise and capabilities. When humans collaborate, we achieve incredible things. When I was growing up, the biggest environmental concern was the ozone layer, right? What happened? All these nations came together, they signed the Montreal Protocol, uh, 1987 I think it was brought into power, into force. When it was adopted, they they phased out lots of um, chemicals, CFCs, HFCs, things that they knew were damaging the ozone layer. I grew up around that time, hearing still, you know, apocalyptic scenarios of, well, we've damaged it now; it's beyond repair. What's going to happen? Actually, we now know that it's repairing; it's replenishing itself. Something that we didn't know at the time. That is what we are capable of. For me, the the issue really is that we've only we have only just started doing this. I have been in this space for a long time. There's a lot of people who are now coming into this space shouting and saying that you haven't taken action. I've been here for 20 years, you know begging people to take action so I'm optimistic because actually I see quite a lot of very rapid change and like I say a lot of that comes from ordinary people that ordinary people are concerned and that is I mean come on that is the best that is the way that change always happens when ordinary people back causes like you know, um supporting gay marriage, for example that 's when the change really happens. The politicians pull the lever when they kind of see that the social license in there and that and that social license is there for nuclear now and it wasn 't when I stepped into this space actually when I stepped into this space, it was quite a horrible space it was very controversial and I was the, some of the myth busting I was doing was so basic that it did make me quite pessimistic about people, but that shifted as well and and so I can see that that shift has happened quite quickly and it 's very promising, therefore. Why wouldn't we be on track to solve these problems? the other thing I would say is there is an um, International Energy Agency report didn't get much, much notice, but it came out a few months ago where they looked at the amount of clean energy that's being built in the world. And they actually found that we are likely on the current trajectory, we are likely to keep below 1.5 warming. Now I find that's really interesting because when we thought we were exceeding 1.5 warming, it was headline news everywhere. It was, you know, 10 years to live on the placards everywhere. When we finally have some good news that says, actually, we made those changes and that looks like it's going to be okay. Tumbleweed, tumbleweed. And that's because people think it's clever to be pessimistic. But actually, it's just easy, right? Because we have a negativity bias. It's easy to be too negative. But, um, you know, hyper fixation on the problems doesn't fix the problems, does it really?
2: Hmm. So this is what I'm sort of curious about in terms of uh, how how it's communicated. So it's obviously, you're you're a former climate climate activist yourself. Do you think the tactics and the the framing and the way they talk about uh, the problem is effective? Like like you say, if we're going to be optimistic, and you've got a group like you know with extinction in the name, that sounds a bit doomery. It sounds a bit you know.
1: Yeah. So well, yeah. So. I mean, this is why I left Extinction Rebellion. I don't know if you know this story, but, you know, they, they were... When I, when I joined Extinction Rebellion, I was not a founder. I'd actually stepped away from these groups because I'd sort of gotten quite fed up of them. I'd done it for a long time. I didn't feel it was working, actually. I'd been badly treated by police. Um, I was fed up. I was doing my own thing. I published a book on how to live with a low-carbon footprint, and Extinction Rebellion reached out to me and said, Do you want to come be a spokesperson? And I kind of umdenard and, and I thought the same things as you, they've got extinction in the and They said, Well, that's referring to, you know, all species that extinction is an issue. And I thought, okay, fair enough. And I umdenard about it because the, yeah, they seemed quite negative. But then when I went down, what convinced me is I went down to the first um, rebellion. No, it was the second rebellion, but it's the first one that really got them noticed, which was April 2018. It was all across London. I think we shut five sites across London. I was at, I was with the Southwest contingent. So I helped shut Waterloo Bridge and keep that shut. And they kept it shut for two weeks in the end. I wasn't there the whole time. But the the atmosphere there was so positive. It It was like nothing I'd ever seen before, actually, in those movements. And that, I felt that was really galvanizing. You know, people would come over to us and thank us and say, we can now walk on this this, we can walk across the bridge, we can cycle with our families across the bridge. Um, it was like a party atmosphere uh, on the bridge. Um, we had Hare Krishnas coming up and like cycling around and, and giving people free food. It was very, it was very much like, well, maybe we can build this better future. And I would say that in the beginning, that kind of was the messaging. Extinction Rebellion became much more doomerous as time went on, they became much more negative and, you know, ended up doing things like from that, really positive action which if you look at the reporting at the time so much support i spoke to journalists who were like gushing over what we were doing people really believed in it there were studies done showing how we brought the air pollution down in those areas because you know it's very very busy traffic otherwise in those areas but then if you fast forward a year later we're doing stupid things like canning town if you remember that we climbed on the (sighs) tube People got beaten up by an angry mob because they just wanted to get to work on time, and we'd really lost. I think we'd somehow in that time we lost sight of of what the movement was. And to be honest, this is very typical of social movements. Occupy did the same thing. You know, they started out with this messaging, and then it kind of fizzled out into nothing, didn't it? They popularized. They popularized. Some, terminology but they never felt that they that they met their aims and one of the reasons one of the founders has spoken on that saying one of the reasons is because it just grew so rapidly and they didn't expect it and we we said that in xr too that almost it just grew too quickly and we couldn't handle it and and certain certain factions and ideologies took over that maybe weren't there at the start and that was where i stepped away because i did a tv interview where i was asked to defend some of their more apocalyptic made-up comments and i refused to do so um and then that for me was kind of the final straw where I thought I just need to go and actually either start my own thing, you know, or just be a lone voice, which actually has worked out really well in the end, but was a was a scary thing to do in the beginning.
3: Sion, it feels like you've um to put words into your mouth perhaps, it feels like you've gone from campaigning to communicating a little bit on your journey. Um do you think groups like Extinction Rebellion, just a they're pissing people off, right? Are they at a point of doing more harm than good?
1: We always um, I mean, in these groups, you know, we always believe that we were communicating, but we're just we're stuck in a little echo chamber where everybody around us agrees with us. And when I stepped out of that echo chamber onto the other side, um, I mean, you know, I think for me, it was it was almost easy to do that. If you look at these movements, they tend to be middle class. They tend to be white people. Um, You know, that's not a criticism. These are the people that, you know, they have good intentions. But look at, you know, what groups have I been in? Green Party I used to be a member of um Extinction Rebellion studies show mostly middle class, highly educated people, um, mostly white. I come from a very working class background from parents who are immigrants from absolute poverty in India, um, grew up, you know, w- they're working in factories when I was growing up. So I always had other concerns um that these groups didn't have. So although I was involved in them and maybe yes, you know, got quite high up in, in, in Extinction Rebellion, um I never I never quite saw eye to eye with a lot of the messaging um, and I tackled this when I went on um, Common Ground uh, hosted by Trevor Phillips to debate it so this was after I left X6 Rebellion I debated one of the co-founders Claire Farrell who you know I like her and I've always gotten along with her but even in that hour-long debate it's 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 all online we couldn't find Common Ground she said things like I don't understand why everybody doesn't give up what they're doing and go and block roads." And I would say that's because, Claire, most people are just trying to put food on the table, you know, and get through the day. And I I remember sitting there thinking, I can't communicate with these groups. Like, what hope, hope do they have of changing the world when we are in such different worlds, actually? Um, and that was someone I knew. Um, so yeah, they're very insular and Just Up Oil has the same thing. If you look at their website, actually, they say it's all about communication. That's what they're trying to do is, is draw people's attention. They don't care that they're upsetting people. They see that as part and parcel because, you know, Gandhi did it and Martin Luther King did it. That's what they'll say. I would say these are very different movements, but anyway, that is what they'll say. That's also what we used, people used to say next XR. What I realized was that, well, I mean, A, obviously upsetting people is not going to find common ground with them. But B, you have to speak to where they're at, and this is a really basic principle anyway in any communication, isn't it? You know, if their if their concern isn't climate change, what are their concerns? All right, well maybe it's job security. Okay, well we can talk about jobs in clean energy. You know, I've I've spoken to I spoke to a ga- gas boiler fitter who told me that he completely supports climate action, but he's angry. He's angry with these groups because as gas boilers are phased out he will lose a career that has enabled him to put food on the table for his family. He will lose that livelihood. And, you know, he said, there's no retraining, but even if there was, he's approaching retirement age. So he said, I can't retrain. And I realized, you know, those people have never had a voice in these movements. These movements are very, very um, insular and formed of a certain demographic and speak to a certain demographic. And that's it. And that's why, we we almost can't communicate with most people because we don't understand most people um they don't care that they're not popular they think that that in in a way is a kind of martyrdom because suffragettes weren't popular for example um but yeah i haven't been able to communicate with them i now just try to go around them and reach the people who frankly are being put off environmental action because of them i mean this has become a huge wedge issue now look at look at You know or low traffic neighbourhoods being used left right and centre um, and essentially all these things are just trying to make incremental improvements to people's lives and health and the environment um, and that is quite easy to communicate um, so that's what i focus on now
2: obviously we saw the uxbridge by-election which i think in hundreds of years time will be looked upon as this big monumental moment in political history uh, given how it's <laughs> treated uh, so obviously as we do st- more stuff to mitigate uh, climate change, more things are going to have to change. More people are going to have to change how they live. Given the negative political reaction to something like you, Liz, which people saw uh, on their bank statements, how do you think uh, people can be brought along with the the, ver- the the changes that need to happen? Because as we do more, lives are going to have to change more. I guess.
1: Yes, I don't know. Like we do need to bring people along. We need to be really clear about communications um but some of this some of these things are being used by bad actors for their own um you know th- their own purposes there's a lot of conspiracies around um especially now that's you know that's bleeding into this kind of climate stuff is about control and i think that's really sad uh but also perhaps inevitable i don't think that's down to a lack of communication you know in my neighborhood which look i live in Exeter uh, very peaceful little place while I live in here. And we had, we've had we had some changes with some low traffic neighbourhoods being brought in. Very small changes, a few roads closed temporarily to see whether it impacts the air quality because on those specific roads, the air quality is above legal limits. So it is harming the residents on the roads. And it's actually right by, it's by where I live actually and there's a primary school. So, you know, this is, this is really important. Um, I thought the communications that the council put out were pretty clear. I thought that it seemed like a good idea, run the trial period. You know, that that is literally all I thought about it until I saw that there were huge protests. I mean, for this, again, for this part of the world, you know, like lots of people, over 100 people protesting, angry. Why are you controlling our movement? This isn't about air pollution. This is about control, like really some mad stuff going on. Uh, and I went to at one of the consultations to speak to some of these people, just see, you know, what their concerns were. Air quality didn't come up once. Anytime I mentioned it, they'd say, oh, well, I suppose that's a concern. You know, when people have certain beliefs around conspiracies, you can't, you can't, I mean, we in science communication, you, you divide people into these groups. There is often a group uh, for whom this belief is like a fundamental religious belief, and there is no point debating it. Like, this is true for anti-vaxxers, anti-nuclear people. This is true for a fact you know a, a faction of society it's only a very small minority but it's the ones where you just actually don't don't waste your time like go to the other people before they reach them because the other people are on the fence and you can talk to them this had so many of those people there it was almost like a mini you know Ulysses. like just and i was watching it play out thinking that it's really interesting because you know actually these people can still drive in their cars no one's saying they can't drive they're not being charged for it they just have to go round. they have to go round these roads like that's how it impacts them on the roads themselves, like people can now walk with their kids. People can cycle. You know, the residents are happy, obviously, in the consultation. They agreed with the closures. Very simple, very clearly communicated. And yet it was it's being used. Um, and I mean, I'm not exaggerating. You know, when I say it's being used, there are there are ca- there are councillors who voted through this low traffic neighborhood um, trial who have had death threats. They have had um, bike tires punctured. They have had one of them had dog poo put through his door. I mean, it's really quite serious stuff. Do you think those councillors are going to next time vote for any kind of climate action? I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't. So I think, you know, there's a lot going on there. Um But what, so my my in that instance, you know, my message isn't like communicate more, get it out, they're more convinced because I don't think a lot of those people will be convinced. I think they have a lot of other issues. When I spoke to them, a lot of them were very panicky about the control idea, which I actually think has come from lockdowns. They had a bad experience in lockdown and they're so terrified of that level of control now that they're channeling it into low traffic neighbourhoods. I actually felt that that's what was happening. So what I would actually say is we just need to we just need to put up with the bad, you know, take your addresses offline, for example. You know, think about how badly things can go but still take the actions anyway just think of it in terms of like um, the smoking ban remember that and the uproar and the outrage and the protests right now the polls show that like over 99% of Britons would not go back to having smoking indoors but at the time it was that you know you're taking away our rights and similar things you know people being attacked and all this stuff but now we we got over it humans are very adaptable and the same thing happened with carrier bags the carrier bag ban although they called it that but it wasn't really a ban was it but you know the charges that came in everybody just adapted in the end it was all fine so i actually think Politicians and policymakers just need to push some of these things through, even though they will not be popular. And frankly, you know, I had someone, so I had an argument with someone at one of these consultations. She'd been very angry, actually. She basically was saying, This isn't democratic. This is a democracy. She kept saying it. And I said, Well, actually, I think this is how democracy works, right? We voted for these guys. And they have gone and pulled over the paperwork and they have seen that the best way to bring down air pollution is to do put these restrictions in place. Yes, some of that air pollution will go into other areas because people we are driving there, but it won't be above legal limits. And essentially, over time, it does encourage less people to drive as more people realise that those routes are safe to walk with their kids and cycle, which is what the, I didn't do that. Like the people went away and the people I voted for went away and did that that literally is the democratic process <laughs> and um yeah she didn't like what I had to say i don't think i got through to her but you know that it's true and if you don't like it fine you can vote for other people next time and that you know you've given that example of uxbridge and some of that will happen but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't make the right decisions going forward even if they won't be popular you know they just need to be evidence based that's the most important thing that they take we should try and take as many people along as we can but they i think actually this kind of pushback is is not going away and we if you're following any of what's happening with electric vehicles it's happening there too it's really
2: curious so one thing I find sort of strange about uh, a lot of climate activists is their desire to sort of link climate to a bunch of other issues it's interesting that you were saying about how uh, you think that for example uh, lockdown has informed people's views of low traffic neighborhoods because you know you often you will see a climate activists say something like before we to fix the climate we've also got to fix all of these other difficult social problems or all of these other intractable problems. I was just wondering, do you think that helps make the case for climate more persuasive or does it just make it harder to fix?
1: It's a bit sneaky, actually. And I did call this out when I was in Extinction Rebellion um, because... Um, so, in, so when I was on the Andrew Neil show mm. and it had millions of viewers and he asked me very directly, what are we going to do to replace the gas theon? And he wouldn't let me not answer. And it was really difficult for me because I'd been briefed and Extinction Rebellion specifically didn't have answers on these topics. Like you weren't supposed to say we can use this or we can do that, which is, you know, what I'm saying where I suddenly thought, hang on a minute. Someone needs to be out there talking about solutions because this group specifically says we don't do that. Now, they do have their own what they would call solutions. And I knew that in my head I sat there, uh, you know, I knew I knew that. But I also knew <laughs> that I couldn't pass those things up by solutions. And that was their three demands, yeah. right? So their three demands, net zero targets, declared climate emergency one and two. Three, their main demand is a complete political overhaul, right, <laughs> it's replacing current democracy with citizen assemblies. That is actually their, their biggest main solution. And I always took umbrage with this because I would say, you know, you can't say that we immediately need to fight climate change and bring down emissions. But first, we need to take the time to completely overhaul society and set up a new system. Like, I don't understand how those things, it's not logical, right? Essentially, that is what they wanted. They wanted, first and foremost, the revolution. And their their argument for that political revolution is this current current system got us into this problem. Therefore, the current system is the problem, which is very, you know, reductionist. And again, I don't agree with that. But when I sat there and, and I really desperately wanted to say, when he kept pressing me on this gas figure, I wanted to say, well, we can just build a lot of nuclear power stations, half the world has done it. The countries that have done it are, are clean and happy, you know, it improves air quality, it provides good unionized jobs for people. It contributes to economic growth, which can then be decoupled from emissions. Like well, This is all good. But I just sat there, you know, thinking, well, you can't say any of this because as a representative of the group, you know, I wasn't I wasn't allowed to. Um, and that's where they've f- they've fallen flat on their faces. I mean that you know there are moments where we really could have pushed for the change that we want, but we're too busy p- fighting actually for this stupid strategy, which i don 't know if you know what this strategy is because obviously it wasn't broadly pub- publicized, but the main strategy actually was <sighs> to Fill the jails with so many people that it would cause societal breakdown, which would enable a revolution. <laughs> now, I know, that's, I know that sounds ridiculous, but I didn't know that when I went into the group because it's very sneakily hidden amongst that third demand. Only through getting to know the founders and talking to them and kind of teasing it out did I realize that that was genuinely, genuinely what their tactics are, which is why they just stop oil their tactics are still get arrested. They're not They're not blocking roads because they want to be treated well. They want to get arrested and fill the jails, and make it harder for people to protest which has happened right that pushback has happened uh because then it will make more people come out and protest and then we fill the jails and well, then we can have a new political system yeah. i know i know it sounds ridiculous to you but no true? That's no what no they believe. i think
3: society is already filling the jails sadly <laughs> we've got very full prisons
1: oh yeah it's true, isn't it? Yeah, I read that. I mean, about they
3: that. take credit if they want, but it's, I don't think it's all down to them. But is it a formal policy? Is that something that people get told when they join, or is that a people.
1: No, well, that's the thing. They don't. A lot of well meaning people, or people like me who want to want to do stuff for climate, because they present themselves as climate organisations, climate activists. That's what Justopoe would say they are. But we weren't allowed to talk about those solutions. And the third dem- the first two demands are just, you know, superficial, declare a climate emergency, uh, set net zero targets. Actually, we achieved those. You know, most of the world has done those things. The third one, change the political system. Uh, what was it called? Beyond politics is what they called it. That that is actually what these groups are about. Sadly, that is it. I, the, <laughs> I yeah, I know they they don't like me saying it, but that once I realized that. I mean, I realized, let's be honest, I realized that because I was sat in a spotlight in front of millions of people and Andrew Neil was pushing me, like really pressing me to talk about the solutions. And I couldn't give, I've spent a lifetime studying this stuff and I was sitting there thinking, I can't give you them. This group that is supposed to be about this change is not about this change. It was a stupid moment. The press called it a headlight, rabbit in the headlights moment. And it was. Was it made
3: explicit to you, though? Was it said, you know, this is actually the ultimate goal? Or is that something that you came to realize?
1: It was. So basically, because I became very involved at a top level with the founders of the group. So these are people that, you know, I mean, look, they call themselves an autonomous movement. And a lot of the local groups are. Um, because they set up themselves and they do their own basic actions. But the core group in London where, you know, most of the donations went, where we had big donors from like big corporations and stuff like that, that. That group is the group that came up with the three demands. It's the group that came up with the name and the declaration of rebellion and all of that stuff. No one else has input into that. This is a small group of people. Some of those founders then left because they had trouble with some of the other people. The few that that were left did tell me outright that these were the aims. So one of them even said, because I had a debate with him. He's a great guy, actually. I stayed in touch with him. He's a nice guy, very well intentioned. And I asked him um, his opinions on nuclear. And he actually said, I agree, you know, that you're right. Like nuclear could do all of this, but we don't want people to continue to develop and do this because people are the problem. We need to change everything. We've, we've gone wrong. We need to go back to, you know, living on the land and in touch with ourselves. This is obviously, you know, where he completely lost me. And I realised that, that you know, this is like, it's like the hippie movement of the 60s, really, just, just just much more clever with its branding.
3: It's actually a real surprise because those are our aims as well. James doesn't <laughs> know it yet, but uh, ultimately we, we're going to end up in prison. Um, Zion, to finish you up, you, you were talking there about nuclear and I'd love to hear a little bit, kind of more about where you see that fitting because... You know, you mention nuclear to some people and they might say, oh, Chernobyl, Fukushima, uh, Homer Simpson works at the power plant, you know, and, and there's these negative connotations. Where uh-huh. do you uh-huh. think it will fit realistically in, in the short and medium term?
1: It's so funny because when you meet nuclear workers, which I have a lot now, right, they are the absolute opposite to Homer Simpson. These are the most like nerdy, pedantic, attention to detail type people. Like do not make bad jokes in front of them because they will not laugh. They're so serious and on it. And that's what you want. You want these people who work at these power plants to be like that. But it's funny that the stereotype is the complete opposite. Uh, Yeah, people. Yeah, sure. I mean, look, the meltdowns. I don't shy away from the meltdowns. I will talk about meltdowns. The meltdowns were real and they happened. But we know why each one happened. Uh, Chernobyl especially was, you know, like a, a... unusual case because of what the Soviet Union did and the fact that they used a reactor that they knew was flawed in its design which isn't built anymore and the ones that still exist have been upgraded so they can't explode modern reactors can't explode and that was the big problem in Chernobyl but like you know things like Fukushima Three Mile Island no one died because of the meltdowns It was just a lot of fear the biggest impact that those had especially um, Fukushima was that Japan and Germany then phasing out nuclear as a result actually had far more impact and there's people, have, scientists have crunched the numbers on this and found that thousands of people have died since because they went back to fossil fuels um, and that resulted in more deaths from air pollution. And that's before you talk about climate impacts, of course. Um, so what, you know, what I tend to say is if you just put all of that, if you put all of the disasters together and you put all of the the nuclear incidents together, um, they still, the impact on the planet or, or human or, or any animal life is so insignificant compared with the burden of fossil fuels and i really think this is some of this is some of this is because environmentalists like jumped on the nuclear anti-nuclear bandwagon but some of it is i think quite clever stuff from the fossil fuel industry you know i find it interesting that we always talk about nuclear waste but no one talks about fossil fuel waste which is being stored in the earth's atmosphere as we speak you want to talk about waste not being managed my kids are breathing that stuff in right like come come on so a No large industrialized nation in the world has been able to decarbonize without nuclear or a combination of nuclear and hydro. So the few countries where they're geographically fortunate enough to have a lot of hydropower like Sweden or Norway, they have been able to do it with a lot of renewables because they have the hydropower and it's more reliable than wind and solar. However, even they still have a lot of nuclear and they have good nuclear programs. Um, So you're always going to need that clean baseload capacity. Uh, Second... B is something that you will never hear environmentalists talk about. And I don't think this shift has happened yet, like culturally. Um, we are always going to need more energy. So actually, we should be planning and building for more. And the truth is, most of us are not wasteful. It's expensive to leave your lights on when you're not at home. Most of us are trying to conserve, but we are also heavily dependent. We are using a laptop right now. I have a mobile phone. You know, this, our lives are heavily dependent on this technology, these are not going away. And as we switch to things like heat pumps and EVs, we're going to need more electricity. Now, imagine if around the corner there is some other brilliant technology that will help to bring down our carbon emissions, and we won't have the electricity to supply it at the moment. Right? That's what happened after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Is actually there was a deficit of energy. Suddenly there was a crisis, and even since that crisis, we are not thinking about uh, increasing our capacity. So a we 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 know how to decarbonize we should, we need to do that and a lot of countries are to be fair even just since the russian invasion of ukraine a lot of program nuclear programs have started up around the world like it's moving very quickly and that is why i i am optimistic it's not a lot of it's not happening in the west it's happening in the east but but you know hopefully we'll catch up too um but yeah, the second thing is we should plan for an energy rich future because we are heavily energy dependent. This would always be true. And we find we're very good at finding novel ways of using more electricity. For example, look at AI it's very energy intensive. There are lots of good applications of AI is already being used in climate modeling. It's being used to um, help patients in aging populations like in Japan, where they don't have enough care workers. They use AI instead to help monitor patients. There are so many good applications of these technologies. Imagine if um, you know, we continue down this trajectory of of barely meeting our needs. I think actually we're doing a massive disservice to ourselves and what humankind can achieve. And I actually think, you know, there's broad agreement on this now. It's not like uh, even four or five years ago when you, you said nuclear, the kind of the, the room would go silent. And why are you a shill? Why? Are you, who are you shilling for, Zeon? In fact, I haven't been called a shill in ages Uh, That's how different that is now.
3: (laughs) We can call you a shill for humans. I'm a
1: shill for humans. Yeah, I think we should survive. I think people should have (laughs) a good quality of life and not live in poverty. That we should all have access to healthcare and education, all the things that make humanity great. And I think more people means more innovation and bringing more good things into the world and, and advances in science and technology that will propel us forward into a future where we can have clean air and live on a healthy planet. It is not. It is not rocket science. We have all the tools at our disposal. We just need. Uh, you know, to make sure that A, the messaging is about stepping those things up rather than about uh, you know random things like political revolution and b that that policymakers and politicians understand that a there's a lot of support for these things and b it's perfectly possible and frankly you know these are the legacies they can they can leave future generations if we tackle these problems now we can we can go and focus on doing other incredible things
2: fantastic and um, I'm very finally talking of shilling is there anything uh, you'd like to plug how can people find out more about your work <laughs>
1: It's just my substack, Um I write on there regularly and I am not, I am independent. I do not work for any industry. Um, so I make my living from writing and doing a lot of public speaking. So, you know, it's free to read, but equally, if people want to support me, that is the best way is to go to go on my substack.
3: You don't work for an industry, Zion, but you do shill for humans. So,
1: I'm proud to be a human shill. <laughs>
3: <laughs> There's definitely worse things to be. There's definitely, definitely. Well, from Rose, we just wanted to finish by saying thank you for your time and congratulations on the Holyoke Medal.
1: Oh, yes, thank you. Yeah, yeah, I was just awarded that recently.
3: I love the acknowledgement from the Humanists Society, and, and yeah, congratulations on that.
1: Thank you very much.